Tits, it's the Occult Mystery Podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. Hello, welcome to the Occult Disney Podcast, where we have a look at all the secrets hidden behind the mouse. Uh, as always, this is Matt here, joined today by the uh, Satanic Skeleton Mouse, I guess. Or do you have a better name for, for your your get-up right now? I'm just Paranoid American. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. My name's Thomas so- from ParanoidAmerican.com. That's it. Oh, you got a haircut then. That's right. I did. Okay, that makes sense. And and since it's Orlando, everyone grows mouse ears eventually. I get it. <laughs> I just I got back from the park during a hurricane. I got hit by lightning while I was on one of the rides. Like a big a big thing happened. I was holding like a enchanted token, apparently, some kind of a totem. Ooh, that jewel that used to be in the great movie ride, maybe. That wasn't that cursed. They'll do it. <laughs> Yeah, but apparent apparently the the antidote is on Little St. James, but unfortunately I, I can't get access to that anymore. I know. Yeah. Uh where are we today? Uh, we are now, I guess we're hitting fully modern Disney. It's it's an old movie at this point, but it just feels a uh, very still modernish, I guess. The Little Mermaid, it's the the modern spell of Disney. Should we say that? Yeah, I mean, when when we were watching it, I definitely felt older because i remember when it came out and then seeing okay 89 not not you know not too recent not too old but the animation it looks classic now compared to any animation i've seen in the last three decades almost uh it definitely had you know it shows its its age in a good way though in a good and maybe a bad way yeah this is the last um animated disney movie done on cells I think DuckTales does too, but that's not like mainline, right? That's uh, kind of the, the side of Disney animation. But after this is when they go fully digital. So the coloring becomes all digital. They start using the caps system, all that sort of thing. Getting hot. It was getting hot under there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also realized my, my, my headphones weren't even on. So I had this extra complication for no reason. There you go. Yeah, I was like rambling like slightly longer than I meant to about the uh this being the last cell drawn <laughs> movie. So yeah, it, it it mostly does go digital after this point. At this point, um, I was re- when I was reading up on the production, just as as far as animation things, it also said um, you know, mentioned this was the most bubbles they'd had to animate since Fantasia, and they outsourced those to China. So. Not Korea, really, the, China. the bubbles. There's a lot of like smoke effects and fluid effects in this one too. So that I mean, it was interesting. I liked it, and there was a lot Alec of like effects. lightning effects and and like the lightning jumping around through the clouds and stuff. Uh, and it was a nice blend of. Um, I mean, I assume a lot of that was done digitally, like kind of in post, but it was a nice blend between the two. Yeah, a lot of the hazy effects. So this is an interesting. I guess this is the most hybrid of Disney's movies, where it really does have like half of it, you know, big chunk of its analog, a big chunk of its starting to get kind of digital. For eighties, it's a lot of digital. Yeah, I mean, um, but at this point, it's classic enough that it almost feels like, eh, we'll just put it in the analog, 
uh, bucket. <laughs> like, we're just going to put this in the traditional animation bucket, even though for the time it was pretty digital and, you know, forward thinking and like futuristic almost. But now it's not. So now it's just classic Disney animation. I don't remember seeing this for the first time. I mean, I was 10 when it came out, I guess, but I, I just have. I don't know when I first saw it. It's kind of weird. I get it's one of those things where you probably saw bits and pieces at like, you know, elementary school parties and stuff, and just had to piece the movie together over like a year or two. Because I'm, I'm positive also... that I've seen it start to end, but it was be- probably because like I was babysitting or getting baby sad or something. I don't. Yeah, I was probably getting like it was probably like a babysitting related thing. No, I, I've seen this movie a, a, several times. Um, I mean, I actually, well, I have it on. DV- the DVD is in the player, but in the end, end I got lazy and watched it on my computer. But <laughs> DVD's in the player, so could have done it that way. Also, I wanted to, you know, just crank up the speed a little bit because it was getting late at night. Um, <laughs> this one's not a bad one to watch at like one, one five, maybe even two. Yeah, yeah, but uh, well, I, just, you got the songs, of course, which sound a little silly if you're playing at that speed, but uh, you can you can handle that sort of thing. But yeah, I did the DVD in here is the um, really bare basic one that came out in 97 99 and i i wonder if that's the first time i watched it in, in its entirety of course i have a daughter so when she was a kid we watched it a few times um she went off to see the new version at the theater last month and i did as i said i got my viewing of that in and was basically like you don't need to watch it especially for anything like meaning or symbolism i mean there's that probably some of that modern day you know disney stuff you could find in the live action one but i I think the core stuff is all in the animated one so we're good to go with this one and i'll I'll reference it a few times as we roll on okay i'm curious what your daughter thought oh i did ask her a few days ago i was like um would did you like the one you saw in the theater or the anim or the animated one without hesitation she she said animated so (laughs) She knew she had to, otherwise, you know, she she wouldn't have been sleeping outside for a week or something, right? She's got pretty good taste in movies. Uh, she went, I mean, she wanted to watch like Hitchcock films. She wanted to see like the you know the old school Indiana Jones films, that sort of stuff. So, um, she's she's got enough of a taste for movies to kind of get it, I think. Now we'll um, get there once we work it through animation, because now Indiana Jones is all Disney too, right? So so now we got an excuse to go through those and observe. For, yeah, for a cold exactly. Symbolism. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the new one, I was, I mean, the, the actors are fine. Uh, what is it? Javier Bardium or am I saying his name right? Plays Trident. You know, he's fun. I, you know, I actually kind of missed seeing him in, when I watching the animated one again, because he's got his gravitas. Um, uh, the, the girl who's Hallie Bailey. It's so close to, yeah, Barry, right? It's confusing. They're I mean, trying to fine. program us MK Ultra related. Yeah, really. She's fine. She, they're like, oh, yeah, we have a big star in this movie. That's not. I mean, I guess she is because she did the movie and it's successful. But uh, the guy that plays Prince Eric, I, I don't remember his name. He, he was fine, you know? Uh, did they he seemed disclose... way too much older. Well, okay. So I was about to ask, did they disclose the ages in the live remake? Because when I was taking... I haven't seen the live remake, but I know it exists, obviously. And as I'm making these notes, in the movie, they explicitly mention... The Prince Eric just turned 18. He's a legal adult. And the Ariel is 16. And the first thing I thought was like, ooh, that would be a weird one to to immediately, you know, bring that translation over to the live action. So now you've got you've basically got, you know, something that would get you put on a list uh, if you were to actually pursue it outside of the movie. 
I don't think they say that. I think they might still say Ariel 16 in the new one, but uh, let's see. I'm, I'm looking at the actors. Holly Bailey. It's hard to say her name is uh, like 23. Okay. Uh, I mean, right now she's 23. Right. And the, but we're talking the guy... about the story here, the, like the actual plot line. Oh, yeah. I'm just wondering about the new movie. Sorry, I'm having a brain tangent. Um, it's a five year age difference in the live action one. And the move and the animated one, yeah, I it's sixteen eighteen, which I don't know. It, in a older society, I guess that's fine. I, I yeah, it seems weird now, right? It's like the college freshman dating a a high school freshman, which is kind of weird. And and I I think the other part too is some of the dated aspects. So when you know nineteen eighty nine movie and it starts out, and I had a note like, man, this movie is white, like white white, like every single mer mer person mer folk right they basically it's the same you know white chick just with like different colored hair and different colored scales um but, Peter Pan. yeah there there is like <laughs> zero diversity under the sea which is ironic because usually you think is you know under the sea is where there's lots of diversity <laughs> where it is white to zero diversity <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that should have been sebastian's song i guess here's one weird thing like it never occurred to me watching um the animated one that this is like a tropical colony sort of thing which the new one does make clear that prince eric is living in like a tropical colony i mean i guess i just never really thought too hard about where prince eric was but the new one definitely makes it clear this is this is probably caribbean or something which i well, mean the music should have been a tip off i again the music i first one is 10 i first saw one is 10 so you know I, I, it's a, maybe I've never assessed this movie like completely improperly till you know we are doing it now. <laughs> well, because this is a cult Disney, and because of recent events and everything, I just I can't watch this movie and not imagine it's off the coast of Little Saint James, and that <laughs> the entire premise here is that they're grooming this this girl to go and get whisked away by this prince that lives in a castle, right? And it just it feels so much like I don't know. I want to say too much about it, but it it just it's weird at this point, just because of the the premise of the movie itself, the background of the movie, um, but also yeah that that tropical aspect and the fact that there's connections between Ghislaine and between you know Jeffy and uh, other Disney related aspects to this. Yeah, I did. I don't know if Katzenberg is a guy, one of the guys that was hanging out there, but it seems like everybody like at least had a, a short vacation or something. So. <laughs> And and I looked it up. I mean, on a, on a tangent, I'll just spit out the highlights instead of the tangent aspect. But there's some pictures of Ghislaine Maxwell doing like a Disney event. Apparently, it wasn't that she was working for Disney or employed by Disney. It happened in like '86 or something, so it would have been before Little Mermaid. She also claims that she didn't meet Epstein until like after like '98 or something. So it was after this movie came out, like a decade or. So something like that but she's loosely connected to disney there because she did a like a save the children fundraising drive which is kind of creepy in its own right and you can find yeah. the original images on the mirror because she was actually working for the mirror at the time uh but yeah so i mean i was i was trying to do some some digging between the Ghislaine connection because right after she leaves that right after she meets epstein they buy like he buys little saint james 
Um, that's pretty much what happens immediately. And then she gets deep into ocean research. She had like this whole like I forgot the name of it, but it was some kind of a you know nonprofit organization international global organization where they did something about like sea research so anyways I, like I'll, I'll save you all the extra tangents but i was watching this whole movie through that kind of lens a little bit yeah i guess mine was a little nicer in, just in that i was i mean as we were talking earlier i was very much in the my daughter just watched this thing so i i, I told you she saw the live action one and the la- the next three times she went out she went you know was wearing a dress which like i said was kind of different um, I think she's back to not wearing dresses around. So, I mean, like, <laughs> what seeing the original animation or the live remake? The live remake, which does uh, feature a scene of Aria uh, going around in a very nice, like, blue dress. Mm, okay. Yeah. I wonder if blue has anything, you know, because it's it's blue in this one too. So, I don't. I, I mean, it's pri- it's primary color. It's kind of hard to. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's, in <laughs> row, it's a blue dress. I don't know. I'm just saying, saying here now, you know. Devil with the blue dress on. I don't know that sort of thing. Uh, well, and I've heard recently this was an interesting concept, but that like or white, orange, yellow colors come from the sun, so they are like these extraterrestrial energies. But that blue comes from the earth, so it's like this terrestrial energy, and that's why there was all these reports of the old gods from different cultures being blue skinned. Uh, it was just, it was just some random note that came up recently that I thought was really interesting. Blue bloods, all that, yeah. No, my my mother would drive me crazy when I was a kid because I'd want to wear like say like an orange shirt, and she'd be like, "You're a cool, you're a winter, you're not a summer, you can't wear that." So, because <laughs> she'd gone to some kind of um me- some kind of meeting where they sorry some kind of meeting where they explained how these are winter colors and these are spring colors and people and their skin tones and hair make them a winter or a summer or something so oh so it wasn't like an astrological thing it was it was like uh i don't know it was just i mean it sounded like an astrological thing yeah but it was basically basically no it was a a fashion thing so it might who knows maybe it was astrological and just got watered down by the time my mom heard it so (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's how a lot of these things work right (laughs) Uh, yeah um but where were we yeah, I guess I just should say for the effects of this movie, another thing is I was um, at the school I work at yesterday, and there's about, you know, there's like eight, six, or seven-year-old kids uh, we're get, waiting for class, doing check tests. Four of them are girls, and all of them had at least one piece of aerial merch about them. One of them had the water bottle with, with the aerial Working. one. has the t-shirt, you know, everyone's got like something and it's all all the animated one uh, i even noticed at the movie theater because japanese theaters sell a bunch of um you know like merch at the theaters and and it was all animated even though it was promoting the new movie well we've so, talked about this a few times that there's a good there's a very good chance that disney just pumps out the anim or the live action remakes knowing that they might be inferior or seen as inferior and they still sink the money into it because it gives them a whole other reason to resell all the ancillary goods from the original movie. That, And then, you know, you, you put those out. And of course, you're going to see her on cups. You're probably going to see like sneakers and T-shirts and like it's a whole revival of the new and the old. But I, I feel like they bank on the old more so than the new. And, and the Japanese ones maybe get like a little weirder, like uh, maybe two or three years ago in a, in a kindergarten class or some girl, her water, water bottle had Ariel with the phrase mermaid hair don't care. And I still haven't worked out what that means. <laughs> oh, you've never she, you've, you've never heard that before. 
I never heard that. Okay. Because she cares it's about so... her hair. She's got her fork and everything. No, no, no. That's okay. So I think that there's another version of that. It's like horse hair don't care. And it's basically like, I've got beautiful horse hair, so I don't care what you've got to say about me. So mermaid hair don't care is like, I'm so, I'm so styling. Like you don't, you can't even talk to me right now. Like, I don't even care about what you have to say because my hair is so nice. See, I just got an image of like a super dumpy looking Ariel, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just going off in all directions, that sort of thing. Well, that's (laughs) Ursula then. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or, um, well, she's got that crop, that, that crop cut. Well, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to just be like, it's common knowledge, but yeah, that's basically kind of sort of based on, you know, Divine from John Waters movies, which I, I'm a big John Waters fan, so I, I definitely like that. <laughs> you have to explain this to me a little bit. Uh, John Waters is a film director. From yeah, I, I know the guy right? because he's got the he's got like the very unique uh, silhouette and face. But what what movie are you talking about? um several movies is it splash uh, splash is one of them right oh no uh this is this is different these are schlock films right in the 70s john waters made these like midnight movies you know like totally disgusting uh very funny but truly disgusting and his lead actor was a uh was divine who was um a very large man who did drag basically and uh starred in, in okay i think i vaguely uh, know what you're you're talking about now like i got Harris, the image of the, the guy. original yeah the original hairspray is the only place where um divine like really hits the mainstream a little bit because after that divine died shortly after and um and john waters is never i mean he, he would make studio films after that point but he was never like a uh he's definitely for the caught heads you know <laughs> Is Ursula definitely divine, or is that just like a fun cult thing? Or is there? Is no, that, there, that's you know... what that's who they base the character on. And, Interesting. Uh, if I you watch, if you watch seventies Divine, a uh, movie like Pink Flamingos or something, which be re- you know, not safe for work uh, to the extreme, but <laughs> um, great. I I saw it in the theater actually with John Waters doing a lecture at the University of Georgia, and um, there was an intermission. And right before the intermission, you see the singing asshole. So after the intermission, half the crowd was gone. (laughs) (laughs) And then the real movie starts. Yeah. So is uh, is this the first Disney animation with a starring drag queen? Well, Divine's not doing the voice. They just based the character on a drag queen. I mean, potato, tomato. Yeah. Which made me like, I mean, there's so much. So there you go. Uh, Disney, they cast Melissa McCarthy as um ursula and the new one which why not cast like a good drag queen you know what what uh izzard or whatever you know (laughs) somebody like that you know i mean yeah this one and i i could have just picked from like the rupaul you know drag race right exactly yes i'm a staunch defender of the night of the 2016 ghostbusters film i really like it like almost as much as the original but yeah wait is this this the all-female one that's right but Melissa really? McCarthy was not good in in the new Mermaid. Yeah, I I love the uh the twenty sixteen one. Um, I there's don't know. Something, there's t- something in the water there. That's all it is. It touches on some brand of like exceptionally stupid humor that appeals to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I like the designs and stuff. So yeah, simple things um, for simple minds. That's fine. I know a lot of people do not like that one. So uh, I I I happen to be one of the. I also what was my other unpopular? Oh, I like Anchorman two a lot better than Anchorman one. I always. Oh, I I agree. And Anchorman two was made from like the rough cuts of just like random footage. I guess they strung together and made a movie out of. No. 
Oh, they later made an actual Anchorman too, like a fully like we made it ten years later sequel. Oh, I'm I'm so behind. Yeah, that you're talking about Wake Up Ron Burgundy, which is fun, right, but yeah, that's right. the outtakes one. But no, there's an actual Anchorman too, which um <laughs> I prefer. Uh, I, pre- I a lot of comedies I prefer the sequels. I do not prefer the Little Mermaid to straight to video. That is not. I saw. Good. I haven't seen it before. I'm gonna have to look at it. It looks weird. She almost looks like Pocahontas on the cover, which is kind of strange. Yeah, uh, honestly, I haven't seen it either. I'm just assuming I like the old one better. So hey, there's hey, a f- maybe I. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. So there's a few of these <laughs> movies, man, that turn out to be fever dreams, the, like the direct to video ones, because they they fly under the radar, and it feels like someone was like, "This is going to be my vehicle for this weird message that I have to get out." And I understand that it's Little Mermaid too, but I also have like you know this message from I don't know God or the demons or from somewhere, and it's like it's going to come through this movie, and sometimes it comes through those weird direct to video movies. Yeah, yeah. If we if we ever do run out of you know uh, gas in the tank, I mean we can look at some. But yeah, I wasn't ready. Well, we did the, all the brave little toasters, didn't we? Those got quite right. bizarre. <laughs> and that that one, I'm happy with. I'm very happy that I ended up trucking through little brave little toaster two and three because it, they are really like a fever dream. Like if you were to watch them and not have anyone there to back you up, and then like the file was gone or you know Netflix takes it down, it really does feel like a movie that you just dreamed up and that it wasn't an actual movie. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, I was not motivated to do the Little Mermaid two and three, but I don't think they're they don't really have a notor- uh, notoriety for being particularly off the rails either. I, I did, well, I we can we'll find out. We'll yeah, see yeah, when maybe, we get there. We could have missed out. We could have missed out. So that's right. Um, <laughs> no one, no um, one else is really watching them for this particular type of context either. So, as a movie on its own merit, it might not stand up. But there's lots of movies that once you understand how to watch it, they're more meaningful. That's a good point. Um, what is what did the uh, florida parks have for the mer- for the little mermaid these days don't they have a they have a ride or something or is that disneyland uh i haven't been in such a long time i don't even remember i i know that there there's a lot of themed stuff in like an underwater they had an underwater ride at some point but who knows if it's still there it okay. might be problematic you know what i mean <laughs> it might be problematic <laughs> at this point um yeah what do we have in the uh, tokyo disney sea has like a mermaid land which is kind of cool um it's all indoor so if it's a gnarly weather day you go in there and uh mostly kind of smaller kids rides um i'll see if we can find an image actually but uh then they have like a little you know 30 minute condensed live show with giant puppets and stuff and that was pretty cool so uh tokyo does have some some stuff uh, again that is a american property or danish or whatever that's a very popular here so uh japanese are are into this it's a worldwide spell in this case you know uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a japanese person who even knows what oliver and company are but a uh, little mermaid obviously no problem i didn't even know what oliver and company was and i saw it when it came out you know what i mean <laughs> um maybe we should talk a little bit about the excuse me maybe we should talk a little bit about the anderson source material uh hans christian anderson which i i the the detail i remember mostly from that is uh it just being well you you know spoiler alert the mermaid dies at the end uh and also just disturbing details like when she has human legs it's like it feels like walking on broken glass when she walks i'm like wow 
why do we even need to add that in so <laughs> much darker well because it shows how much she was willing to suffer for this ultimate goal but so uh, like i'm ready to get deep on this one and to be honest yeah, it was, was kind of trying to send you down the log flume into that yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't expecting <laughs> out of all of the movies so far that little mermaid would have brought me into the the places that it brought me and i just want to start out with one word one name paracelsus and anyone that's familiar with Par- i mean if you're not i don't blame you because it's it's pretty like a cult esoteric name but paracelsus is to some people the like great grandfather of modern medicine he was recognized out of many many things that he acknowledged that there was a biological difference between men and women so that they should be treated differently if they had problems again that might be problematic in 2023 but it was actually a pretty beneficial advancement in medical knowledge as a whole uh, back when he came up with this i think this is like 16th century and on top of that he understood that that plants actually had some kind of healing properties to them and i think he's attributed to many quotes but one of them is that the 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 doses the cure something like this where he understood in high doses something could be poisonous but in low doses it could be helpful to you whereas i guess in like you know prior thinking it was just like if that thing killed somebody then it's always bad always avoid it it's you know it's poison or it's black magic so paracelsus on one front is known for kind of being the originator to medicine and a lot of different ways but he's also an alchemist uh and he believed in demons and he believed in spirits and nymphs and he was particularly fascinated with water nymphs um and he got his fascination from martin luther where martin luther from you know like the the martin luther from lutheran you know catholics or not lutheran catholic but lutheranism um lutheran the catholic yeah Luther, lutheran catholics that's that's actually the new <laughs> sect that, that i'm coming out with next year that's a paranoid american exclusive uh, but like so Paracelsus and Lutheranism, they both describe these water nymphs and they they talk about them as if they were real. And there's ancient Greek historians that said at one point there was like 3000 of them worldwide and that they could live for thousands of years, but they just slowly began dying off. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's really hard from the perspective that we look through some of these. And when I go back and read the mythology, like was it always just a story did people actually believe this is is it possibly real one of the questions that i like asking people on paranormal interviews if they believe in mermaids because there's been so many documentaries on you know history channel in the middle of the night on like is this a real mermaid skeleton did did the merfolk exist and it's because it is such an old and classic tale that's been repeated for close to you know a thousand years at this point and perhaps farther back but we've we've got definitive evidence of it from around like the 1300s so i don't want to give like an entire history lesson on here but i've got i've got like some highlights on it so martin luther has a version where he talks about this entity called um melusine melusine i'm not sure what the per the exact pronunciation of it is but melusine is essentially the uh the offspring of other gods and she becomes this this like half snake half serpent half lady and in many retellings it sometimes turns into a fish but it's kind of like a a, a shapeshifter we're talking about a reptilian shapeshifter literally and i'm not 
I'm not like trying to to weave that in just for the conspiracy angle. That was the original story as told by both Paracelsus and Martin Luther. So Paracelsus gets influenced by this and he writes a whole bunch of books on elements, you know, um, earth elements and air elements and water elements. So I guess the sirens were kind of like an air element version of a mermaid because they had the body of a bird and then like the top half of a woman. And those are the ones that would just kind of like yell at you, I guess. I mean, harpies, I think are tangentially related to this. Right. But then Singer you scream you to the rocks. Yeah. Right. And what, and then the mermaids are the ones that use their voice, right. Their, their beautiful voice to lure the men to the rocks. We even see that in Peter Pan in the Peter Pan. There's a small segment when they're clearly trying to like kill Wendy, um, you know, because that's what the traditional role of mermaids kind of was back then. These merfolk or this, this melusine is that they were there to kind of lure humans away. And, and this goes back way, way, way back further. So just follow me here. It goes back to the watchers and the original, um, you know, like the Nephilim, this was the, the angels that came down to earth and they wanted to mate with human beings. And then through the mating of these ain't these fallen angels and the humans they create these races of nephilim which are these big giants right and then through all the, the biblical tales and through time you know it starts out with like gilgamesh being the offspring of nephilim but then over time people keep getting smaller and smaller so they're no longer these huge giants they get littler and littler but apparently during those times of giants all of these other sort of non-human entities existed and this is also the concept of like the lilith where the lilith was a succubus that would attack women and children or it would like come and steal your man in the middle of the night and if lilith had any sort of offspring with a human they would turn into like beasts and creatures and demons and monsters and cryptids like that's where all of the weird sort of like things that go bump in the night came from they came from lilith and adam or lilith and whoever else so like all of this does connect a hundred percent back to this this merfolk, this this Melusine character, which kind of again starts in like the 1300s, 1400s. Many different people are writing about it, and it it essentially is like this lady that gets married to a king or a prince, um, and has to hide every Saturday or like one day a week, uh, or sometimes it's like every every three days. There's different variations, but she has to hide herself because she turns back into this fish briefly. Uh, so you know she doesn't want to freak her husband out. So anyways, this this dates back so freaking far. And when Paracelsus's name popped up, uh, I mean, I, I got excited. I got real excited. I'm I'm seeing here curious uh, with the Nephilim and thing. And there's the the kind of alternate track, which, you know, you hit all the same beats. But the 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 whole Anunnaki vibe. Uh, how have you gotten deep on that sort of stuff? A little bit. Like to be honest, books? man. I'm interested in it because other people are interested in it, but personally, I I don't know. I kind of throw them all together. I don't want to disappoint too many people out there that are big into like Anunnaki and Nephilim and ancient aliens and stuff. Uh, well, just I'll, so I'll just throw back. out that I guess that one appeals to me because what you're explaining is the mythological, you know, uh, more magical based one, which is cool, right? I'm a sci-fi head. I like the Anunnaki one. So Stargate, the cliff- yeah. Yes, so the Cliff Notes version would be you have this, you know, like the the twelfth planet rolling through the solar system and only crossing our plane every three thousand years, right? And the folks that live there start a colony here to mine uh, gold 
or whatever. Yeah, this is like Zechariah Sitchin's um, yes, work yes, a little yes. bit too. Yeah, no, this is 100%. That's where what I'm dragging this from. So, <laughs> so you got the actual aliens down in, you know, like the South Africa area that are just getting tired of working this hard and asking that they'd use the, you know, um, local, the locals basically that would still be de evolved uh, hominids to do the work. So, uh, the scientists and and the, these are these are gods, right? I, just, I, I didn't come in prepared. Well, and to this say is just like here, the the humans in Snow Inky. White send Inky. the Earth elementals right. back into the the ground and get yes. the riches, right, in exchange for wisdom. But the um the the part of the story that I I kind of would tie in with the mermaids and why I'm bringing up this this alternate version is you have um Enki. Or is he the? Uh, I think Enki's the 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 more the creator god and kind of like our Triton Poseidon standing in the Anunnaki and him and his wife, you know, doing actual genetic engineering to try and create this worker and making a lot of mistakes, you know, doing a Doctor Moreau style on the way. So something like a mermaid would be one of their failed attempts to create this uh, replacement worker. I wonder how scientific it was, or was it just like you know. Uh, like you two get in that closet. Hey, hey, man, and hey, fish. You just get in that closet for twenty minutes and come back out. Well, the uh, the the apparently the you know people say mistranslated the tablets, blah blah blah. But they are talking basically about like mixing different you know fluids, you know petri dish sort of stuff. So theoretically, it was. I mean, you'd have to impregnate you know a, a willing Anunnaki at some point as well, which is also part of the story. But there's a fair amount of like sciencey science in it you know well and so, so whatever tie, is there science at least <laughs> well and, and to tie that back to paracelsus that's another thing that paracelsus was looking into that was the homunculus concept where you could just take the fluids of different beings and mix them up in, in a special way and it would produce this other thing i mean paracelsian monsters are essentially very similar to what people would claim that like Lilith could produce as offspring. So I, I, it's it's wild how closely it's related to like all this ancient alchemy and all these ancient tales. Because Paracelsus and a lot of people up until I think like the fifteen or sixteen hundreds, they believed in magic and they actually had a line between black magic and white magic. And I think it wasn't even on the books until one of the popes in like 1652 or something. I'm, I'm making some of these numbers up, but um, he was basically like, okay, now all magic's bad. But up until that point, a lot of people believed in white magic and, and even Paracelsus, the, the father of medicine, he didn't understand microbiology or bacteria or viral infections. They really legitimately believed that these were demons that had to be kind of exercised in and out. So you're you're coming from this area of like people know a little bit about medicine and a whole lot about mythology. And I think it's it's an interesting blend because we've kind I mean, of like flip flopped it a little bit now. Yeah, I was going to say at any given time, the the line between magic and science is going to be in a different place. Right. So. <laughs> Uh, and especially if we're, if we do want to go with the gods or ancient aliens, then that line is going to be in a very weird place, right? So um, that that's another part of the stitching thing where just I told you uh, we were watching Indiana Jones with my daughter, and you know the Ark of the Covenant, which watching Raiders again, I was like, it was almost surprising how much of a kind of like reference to it it is i think whoever wrote the script probably read some stitch and we we're like oh it's a it's a transceiver with 
Basically, I like it, man. I, I like the direction they've been taking them. Melt your face off, you know, that sort of thing. So and the last <laughs> one was like the whole place was like a huge alien spacecraft. Like I'm I'm in. I like it. I like that that Indiana Jones is going the ancient aliens route more than ever. Well, the uh, Dial of Destiny d- does not, but that brings in the um, and I'm forgetting the name of the the Greek navigating computer they found in the uh, in the Mediterranean. Yeah, I've uh, actually been watching this. It's it's the the Dial of Archimedes or or something like this. It's got a better name than that, but yeah, right, right. But it's like the <laughs> oldest computer known to man, and it like predates advanced technology by a thousand years. Like no, like there's this thing that is so complex and so sophisticated and then nothing even close to it for a thousand years. And then all of a sudden people have technology again. So it's, it's an interesting point. And it's a, a factual thing. Like this is a real thing. Uh, it was like an, an ancient computer of some kind. Yeah. I think, I think I saw it once. Uh, I think it, it was on display in Tokyo like 15 years ago for, you know, like, well, Indy says later. that was a replica. Okay, well, I saw the replica then. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> anyway, it looked cool. <laughs> I, I well, fifteen years ago, I didn't know what I was looking at. Anyway, I was just like, oh, that's cool. Well, <laughs> I want to. I want to keep going deep here. So, so yeah, first, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a really quick overview, and I mean really quick of like from Martin Luther to modern day, because you mentioned uh, the Hans Christian Andersen one. So it's it kind of starts more or less a little bit with uh, Martin Luther's table talks. And then that influences uh, Paracelsus. He writes about them. This in turn inspires, I'm going to get some names all messed up, uh, Friedrich de la Mott Fox novella called Undine. And if you look, Undine is probably the closest thing to the the original story of Little Mermaid as it begins to morph and, and change as it goes through. So it starts as Undine, 1811. That gets updated into a play called Undine, 1939. That then um, inspires Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, 1837. And then it's also turned into a Russian opera called Raskala. And this is the same story, but it just kind of morphs as it goes between these different mediums. And then finally it becomes like, you know, the, the Disney animation. But like you said, there's a huge discrepancy between some of these older versions and the Disney one. And um, so, and there's another version that's that takes place in a forest where a young man meets this Melusina, this the same water nymph, and she has the body, lower body of a snake. And the rule is that he has to kiss her three times on three consecutive days. And you can see where that comes into the Disney movie where she has three days to get a kiss, but it has to be like the kiss of true love. And if she doesn't get it within three days, then she belongs to Ursula. And there's this whole extra uh, plot line there. But but this is a is a nugget that just has been very consistent with like the three days, which is obviously a very occult number, many different stories. Um, but this thing with like the kiss and the true love. And as you said, uh, it doesn't go well. And in fact, in, in that particular story, Every day she gets progressively uglier. So the first day he kisses her, it's like not that big of a deal, right? But the second day she starts turning into like a horrific, you know, creature. And then the third day, it's it would be impossible to get like that third kiss. So she's kind of set up to fail. And the the tragic end of it is that apparently mermaids don't have souls. Um, they're just like these creatures, like a mechanical animal, like Renee Descartes might call them. And that's why they fall in love with humans, because if they if they have intercourse with a human and they breed and they have, um, you know, half human children, their children will have souls. And there's even a chance that they themselves will have a soul. 
we I think we've talked about this in a few other previous episodes, like the Rosicrucian concept that if an animal spends enough time with a human, the human s like soul might rub off on them a little bit. So maybe dogs do go to heaven. Um, so anyways, that's the very, very long-winded version of it, but it starts from this this Melusine story and it weaves its way into this tale about this this uh, weird creature that has no soul, perhaps because it was like a fallen angel that came to Earth and that they're just trying to get a human soul again. And the Disney animation flips this on its head, but I'll get into that in a little bit. I need I need like a drink of water. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was that was quite a bit, <laughs> and I guess I'll go ahead and note at this point that this was something that was on the um, kind of on the Disney docket since 1939. One of the original ideas for their feature-length animation was to do an anthology of Hans Christian Andersen. They had a treatment for it and everything. Um, this would have been awesome to a, see a like a 1930s version of this. Well, it's interesting because it, it was kind of like um, pitched uh, in the mid '80s, and at first, Katzenberg was like, "We, we want to make Splash 2, which turned out to be an abject failure. But yeah, then they gave the go ahead. They did a new treatment, and apparently, when they com- they found the old treatment after making the new one, and it was very similar. So hmm. uh, the Disney sauce or or spell or whatever was was certainly in yeah the formula they. What they did in 39 and what they did in like 86 or 87 was the beats were pretty much the same, apparently. So, I mean, having not read them both myself and just going by what the production. Maybe less steel was. drums, right? Less steel drums. That, that was late edition. Sebastian was going to be an English butler uh, pretty far into the production until, you know, they brought in um, Mencken and Ashman and they were like, hey, maybe we should like spice this up a little bit which is probably a good choice one of an oscar (laughs) um sorry you had your water and i you were you were midpoint there i think (laughs) oh no i mean that that was the the general premise of how it evolved from martin luther to paracelsus all the way to hans christian anderson and the main beats about hans christian anderson just in case anyone's uh hasn't gone back and read the original source material i mean i never did until we did this so, like you said, she's given this potion and she drinks it. But as she drinks the potion, it's made to make her feel like there's a, a sword being passed through her body. And that once she gets these human feet and these human legs, it just always feels like she's walking on glass because she's never had legs before. And it's, you know, it's part of like the price that she has to pay for this. And then and it's very literal where she ha- she's doing this because she wants a soul. And the only way she can get a soul is if she wins the love of a prince. Um, now, now, this is the part that if you can bear with me, because it goes in a million angles and I'm going to try to give like a cl- like a Cliff Notes light version of this. So there's this this um, study that was given to me recently by my friend uh, David Charles Plate, who does Sync Book. And he gets really deep into like movie occultism connections. But he mentioned this, this paper called the golden bow and the golden bow describes this repeating, uh, like kind of archetype, this repeating template for old, you know, mythology and folklore. And basically it explains the Disney formula, like to a science and it, and it was written way before Disney existed. So the, the golden bow describes that, in order for um, back in the day, there were so much inbreeding between these royal bloodlines and it became a problem. So in order to make sure that 
these these powerful families didn't keep inbreeding with each other one of the prince would typically like go undercover they would put on a mask they'd become like a warlock or a witch or a monster or like a beauty and the beast is a good example so the beast in this case intentionally hides himself and makes himself look like this complete outcast because it is the polar opposite of what a, a pre or a, a prince might look like right so they're kind of like undercover and the reason that they do this is because they don't only need to wed the uh, the the princess of some king. They have to kill the king, and that is the true succession of power. And that also ensures the virility of this this kind of like passage. And it's it's because in like a matriarchal society, it wasn't just the king and then his male son gets to rule. It would go through the king's daughter, and because of that, that's what inspires these princes to come from all over the place and dress themselves up and try to win her heart uh, using this completely alternate identity. And this kind of relates to like all of the animal husbandry wedding situations where you've got the Beauty and the Beast and you've got the um the princess and the frog and you've got all these tales where the prince is hidden, you know, he's changed his, his ability to be detected by like a commoner. Well, in the little mermaid, it's the exact opposite. Uh, and, and it's, it's kind of because Ursula is helping the princess change her appearance and to lure in the prince and the, the subtext, if you go by the golden bow, it's that in some theoretical mythological endpoint, she also has to kill prince eric's father the king in order to fully absorb and become this this next level that she's looking for so that's part of it it's not just that she wants true love she wants a human soul she wants her offspring to have human souls and ultimately she's going to take over and be you know queen of the land just like ursula wants to become queen of the sea right because when um ariel goes back down and goes back to ursula she holds up this contract, and the second that King Triton signs this contract, she becomes the, the queen of the sea. So it's again, it's it's the princess trying to kill the king to take over the kingdom. It's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but man, I'm telling you that that it's all here in the Little Mermaid of all stories. Yeah, I guess they cut the scene where she murders the king from this one. <laughs> Well, she like she kind of shrivels him, right? She she turns him into like a little thing, and then they sh they show earlier in that movie that she kind of like grabs those guys and just like snacks on them, or they're like it's her little garden, um, that she does whatever she wants with. So the the concept is that she's eating them, you know, puts them in the garden, they grow, she eats them, which again in the Golden Bow, that's that is almost a one for one literal translation where they take the, uh, they take the fruit of the land or they take like the branch and that's signifying, you know, removing the daughter or sometimes taking the life of the King in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure how to, how to roll off of that, man. <laughs> I'm seeing it. Just trying to think of uh, other movies. I don't oh, know. I keep thinking we're going to get to toy story before too long. And I keep thinking a little bit about, kind of the the vibe on toy story where you know toys would have no soul they're made of plastic and becoming you know beloved by their owner well, maybe well so so i want to make an important distinction here all this talk about not having a soul this is the occulted aspect this is the hidden mickey aspect of this movie because unless you read the source material you would have you'd never have any idea that this movie is about this creature that has no soul that wants a soul because 
that would completely upset the the Disney proxy formula, right? The Disney proxy is basically saying not only does this character have a soul, but the lunchbox that has her on the front that has a soul and the toy that you get in your happy meal that also has a soul. Like they're trying to very much let you know that, you know, these fish and all of these little side characters, they all have souls because they essentially replace your parents. Uh, that's that's my Disney proxy theory, right? But I but I feel like that's the occulted part because no longer is it about soul. Now it's about love and it's about true love and it's about the you know Prince Eric states like I just haven't found her yet. She's somewhere out there, so he's looking for the the perfect love, and then she thinks that she's in love. So again, this is all based on love, but there's really no correlation to that in these previous uh, source materials. It was never about love. It was about wanting a soul, wanting a human soul. And this is where it takes that creepy turn because again, you've got Sebastian that's helping groom the 16 year old, like here, puff, you know, puff out your lips like this and, and, you know, make this pouty face like this and sway your hair and really attract him. And then Ursula is giving her tips on, you know, how to attract the man and they don't want you to talk, you know, <laughs> like just, just kind of look good. So I, I feel like there's a lot of this weird element of like, like you know using sort of like a your sexual abilities as like weaponized and that's at the core of like the the weird disney programming in this movie more so than than so many others because can you think of another disney character outside of jessica rabbit that has been as sexualized as ariel by the source material not by you know people drawing funny sketches and like side material but like this movie itself they kind of illustrate Ariel like, you know, she's like a like a swimsuit supermodel. They've got like the, the whipping of the hair and the slow motion and everything. Um, I don't know if I brought it up before or not, but there is the uh the old cartoon Heathcliff with uh and then there's the, the You the, have like, brought it up before. Yeah, you've got to you've got to think for yeah, the weirdly sexualized. Right? <laughs> no, I'm just like I'm just like I'm just like that scene, that's the other character i can think of that's like weirdly sexualized right <laughs> as far as animation go because that one is like like someone should have noticed before it got animated what what they were doing so <laughs> i mean that i think that's the thing with all three examples is yeah someone noticed i mean with jessica rabbit it was that's like the joke right it's it's funny but yeah she's not bad she's drawn that way so i wanted to to mention another story that came up in this Paracelsus it's very it's tangential to this but the uh the concept of the water nymphs came from a book that Paracelsus wrote that was about water nymphs and like other creatures and one of those other creatures was a salamander and uh the salamander and it's it's anyway just bear with me I don't want to get into like how it all connects let me just read some of this out so this is from the uh the salamander story so he says, who would care to converse with such an ugly beast as a salamander, male or female? You are mistaken. That is merely the idea which ignorant painters and sculptors have of them. Talking about salamanders. He says, salamander women are beautiful, are, are beautiful, more beautiful even than any of the others since they are of a purer element. I had not intended to speak about them and was passing briefly over the description of these peoples since you will see them yourself at your leisure and with ease if you have the curiosity to do so. You'll see their dresses, their food, their manners, their customs, and their laws. 
The beauty of their intellects will charm you even more than that of their bodies. Yet one cannot help pitying these unfortunate when they tell one that their souls are mortal and they have no hope, whatever, of eternal enjoyment of the supreme being of whom they have no knowledge and whom they worship reverently. They will tell you their they are composed of the purest portions of the element in which they dwell and that they have in them no impurities, whatever, since they are made but one element. Therefore, they die only after several centuries, but in uh, but what is time in comparison with eternity? So here clearly, Paracelsus is talking about female sal salamanders, but the female salamander, it almost seems like a stand-in for an elemental some kind of an elemental nymph so for the water nymph version this would be that that melusina and then he, he goes on this is a crazy one that uh the paracelsus he um he sees the they're telling this story where a kid sees a salamander in the fire like a like an actual magical salamander and the dad also sees it and the dad slaps his kid across the face and the kid looks at the dad and he's like dad why did you just hit me and he was like the only reason i hit you was because like to remind you of this moment this moment is so important because people don't believe that these magical salamanders truly exist and now by me slapping you across the face i've basically like implanted this memory right this is like this nlp anchoring but it's just like you smack your kid and you're like now you're gonna remember this forever and that was that was this like really interesting aspect where i had never I always find it interesting when they write about mythological creatures, but they always stop themselves to say like, Hey, I know that people think these aren't real, but this is real. Like there's no, you know, there's, there's no metaphorical story or anything, or at least unless it's like an inception thing where they're just like burying it. Um, this was one of the first, this was the first major Disney animated film to have a release window. So it came on VHS six months after it was uh, in the theaters. And the original video box is now one of the more notorious elements of the movie, I suppose. Because um, <laughs> it's got dicks on it, right? That's right. I, I think there's one in particular, which, you know, as, as soon as they, this, <clears throat> excuse me, a second release of it, they, they did change that. But it was definitely there. I think most of us have seen it if you like looking at, you know, weird oddity sort of websites and things yeah they've they've never really no one's ever admitted that there were actually dicks but they did change the design because people were <laughs> saying it so much but uh yeah i mean the whole story is about you know like dicks <laughs> and what are these big towers other than dicks and i, I mean it's it's kind of funny because is it a symbol or is it practical? Well, what is the strongest symbol of all is one that can be both, right? Like there's a reason why they have that particular shape in these towers in the background. We're talking about, it's like the castle towers, right? Well, there's a functional reason why they're tall and they look like that, but there's also a symbolic reason of why they look like that symbolic reason of an obelisk or a dome, right? Those are all sort of um, sexualized, energized architecture that relate to this whole as above so below depending on you know what you believe but i think that the people that make them and the ones that pay for them to be constructed they do believe it so there are phallic so whether or not it looks like a dick the little castles are dicks end of story yeah yeah i guess i i'm i mean i'm not disagreeing i'm just saying i wonder if they're trying to show like um 
King Triton's power or something like that. I mean, he's running around barrel chested as well. What is my note here? Oh, I bet Triton's nipples have the texture of kiln hardened clay, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> it's funny because in, in some of the ancient cultures that believed in merfolk, uh, like, like I think there was some Gaelic or really like Druids or something. They believed that in order to show respect to the king, you would suckle the, the king's teeth. So whenever they would try to take a king down, they would cut his nipples off so that even in the afterlife, nobody could suck on his nipples. So therefore, he could never be king again in this life or after. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad I noticed that then. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, if that case ever comes up on trivia night. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. You don't need to suck on the king of the nipple. The king of the nipple. I like that. Okay. <laughs> Actually, that sounds like a really bad, like, frat boy claim. So maybe I don't like that. <laughs> so uh, I was making this point earlier and just to, to drive it home a little bit. In the Disney movie, Ariel wants to be human, but it's not to have a human soul because Disney can't not have their main character not have a soul because otherwise they don't get to sell all the toys that like, you know, put people, put the kids in the, to sleep at night and they want their Ariel stuffed animal and they want their Ariel everything. So Ariel has to have a soul. She wants to be a human for all of the mundane human reasons though. Like she wants to have feet and she wants to feel what it's like to walk on the ground. And there's, there's some interesting parts of this too, where like everyone that's a human in this movie is eating sea creatures. And I went on this whole this whole rabbit hole of like what do merfolk eat are merfolk vegetarian and it seems unequivocally that no they're not a vegetarian i mean technically they can eat seaweed all the time but they don't they eat crabs i mean they eat sebastians um and they eat flounders <laughs> so but then that <laughs> also leads to this this interesting moral question of would a merfolk eating a fish be considered cannibalism so mm. And it was, I didn't go too far down that rabbit hole, but it was an interesting one. Well, I guess like if you eat a chimpanzee, is that, is that, you know, um, cannibalism? Indiana which, Jones again, right? Yeah. Yeah. Monkey brains. So maybe people in there. Yeah, it's maybe a, it's an interesting hypothetical. And I, I had another hypothetical too, just since we're on that note, there's a, <laughs> there's a scene where, she's like pretending to eat with them but you know clearly she doesn't want to eat any seafood because in this movie they almost imply that all the merfolk are vegetarian which has as far as i can tell there's no basis in that that's just like a disney thing where they don't eat their friends right but in reality she would but uh, but in the context of this disney movie she's willing to give up everything right she signs this this horrible contract with clearly an evil sea witch like kind of knows what she's getting into but she signs this contract and she's willing to to give herself up for it all in the chance that she might not even get this guy at the very end so i'm just one the hypothetical that's coming here is that in that scene where she saves Sebastian from, you know, the, the prince's assistant's plate or whatever if they caught her with Sebastian and they were like eat it like eat eat the crab <laughs> right now to prove it. I feel like she'd eat Sebastian because I feel like she's already put so much on the line to the point where that happens that that there wouldn't be sort of a, a sin in her mind to do that because she's already done the unspeakable by basically signing her soul over. Well, it's an interesting thing about dramatization. One, Arrow, uh, I'm going to make a double point here. One, you know, 
in commercial media, yeah, you can't have the soulless creature as your protagonist, right? In older, you know, especially in older books where the, it's not necessarily being written to sell a bunch of copies, you can. So that that's a big difference. I mean, like you said, there's no way Disney could go about having their protagonist be a soulless creature, you know? Um, and what, oh, yeah. The other point is, yeah, once you have followed the eels into the layer, you've you've made your choice. The rest of it is just for dramatization, right? Um, I, I know the last Matrix movie, um, not, I, I liked it fine, but a lot of people didn't like it, whatever. But one thing that I thought was really the video cool is, is like, the video no, game one. No, no, this is the one that came out about a year and a half ago. Yeah, this is the, um, I thought it was the video game one, right? Where like they, they create these virtual video game worlds. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That... Sorry, I thought you were like, that's not Enter the Matrix, the video game or something. But Oh, yeah, not the the, yeah well, which is funny because the movie <laughs> is kind of based on the canon that that game. Yeah, anyways, it's, it's Inception-y. I guess the point I was getting to is once you're being offered the red pill or the blue pill, you've already made the choice. There is no choice at that point, you know? No one would ever go the other way, right? except boy well, does, and that's part of the thing. But uh, yeah, it's just like there is no choice once you're that deep, you know. So she'd eat Sebastian, if, right? She'd eat Sebastian. Yeah, she'd eat Sebastian. Um, if, if she said no, it did probably. I mean, Nurse was probably going to make it happen somehow anyway, right? <laughs> She's already so, there. So th this also brings up another really interesting note that I, I mean. It feels like it's so obvious in the, the plot line, but watching it as an occult Disney, you know, through the lens, they're showing here that a contract is the most powerful thing in the universe. Even <laughs> King Triton with his trident trying to blast, you know, with all of his magic and, and energy and might, he's basically the underwater Zeus, right? Even with all of his power and King of the sea, he can't break a contract. The contract is more potent than anything else. And honestly, I can't think of any other versions of mythology outside of you know, like these Faust these Faustian bargains and stuff, but out like older mythology, humans and uh and like entities could break contracts all the time. That's actually what starts a lot of beef between humans and gods. Uh is that like someone says they'll do one thing and then doesn't follow through and they turn into these like Aesop fable type of aspect. But here in the Disney universe, the one that Disney is showing your kids, here's how the world works. Um they're saying, kids, if you ever sign a contract, that is more powerful than God. Like even the most powerful magic on the, the the face of this planet, I don't care if you are, you know, King Triton himself, you cannot invalidate a contract. And I just feel like that's such a, a, a very strong thing to emphasize. And they do it twice. They do it once when Ariel signs it for the first time and the, the scroll that she signs in a mag immediately turns magical and like it coils itself up and it kind of like poofs out of existence as if like, there's no way that you can take that back. And then again, when Triton tries to blast it, like she uses it as a shield, Ursula does. And then as soon as he signs it, it takes like a nanosecond for him to go into the king of the sea into this shriveled little thing. So again, that's, that's Disney telling you that the power of a legal contract Hint, hint, animators, and hint, hint, people that might be recording this in the theater or trying to make bootleg Little Mermaid gear. You know, Disney contracts are more powerful than God. So I, I just feel like that's a very strong message that they're putting in here. Despite the popularity, at least in Japan, I am thinking about how much of a 
Western occult vibe we're looking at here and how much it like wouldn't work, like say in East Asia. Uh, I, I know some people who used to teach in Korea and one of the biggest issues there is a contract is more of a guideline, which, you know, when they were working, that was a bit of an issue sometimes. So contract's basically a guideline. We can, we can uh, negotiate as we go. And then the whole idea of signing your soul off or, or whatever. I mean, we don't, it's hard to say if Ariel has a soul because of the source material, but, <laughs> but, you know, well, like, they call it her voice. They say it's her voice. Yeah. Okay. Good point. But is, there's a soul. There's, you know, like there's reincarnation. There's always other things. Right. So if it doesn't work out this time, it works out another time, which no, here it's, this is, this is it. This is the ultimate, you know, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. That That's, that's a huge underlying it. point is that in the original source material too, that if Ariel dies, there is no reincarnation because there is no soul. And therefore she turns into like sea foam and that's it. That she just never exists again. So it's, it really is putting everything on the line. Whereas, yeah. And uh, directly from the Japanese perspective, you know, there's the idea that inanimate things have souls. There's the soul of the mountain, you know, that sort of thing. So the original concept just, would would barely even make sense from an eastern perspective this the, completely wild tangent but i <laughs> there's a like a, a trash tv show like a 90 day fiance or something when i remember watching seeing one recently and this lady was having a problem because her fiance was from japan and she found out that he had been married like three or four times but apparently in japan like the the legality and the seriousness of a divorce is a little bit different than in the western world because in japan it can be one way like both parties do not have to consent for a divorce to go through so the guy like potentially had like three wives and then just like one way divorced them i don't know i, I don't know if you ever heard of that before it sounded wild to me but it, it kind of backs up what you're saying is that this concept of a contract having more power than god might be like a western thing and hey, you know that it might even be the more important uh, thing we're like programming because I mean, gr I grew up in America. We take our contracts quite seriously, right? You know, we as, as kids, we saw that, you know, the power of King Triton cannot cannot breach the contract. So <laughs> and it's, it's kind of true, but it's also it's almost like currency, right? It's if if everyone's just like, that doesn't mean anything. So what? I, I wrote my name on a piece of paper 20 years ago. What does that mean? But like, you know, humans give it power because without it, I guess just civilization turns into absolute chaos because I mean, even even a fiat currency deep down, that origin came from having like a stamp from the king or it got uh, where they call the tally sticks, right? They'd break the tally stick and it would only match up with the king's tally sticks. And that became burdensome. So they would just like write you like a check that's like, I owe you 20 tally sticks and sign it. And from that exact moment, it's almost like, you know, the signature becomes this magical thing that has power and the power is from everyone believing in it. It's like this shared illusion. Yeah, yeah, our economy is basically um, based on hopes and dreams. Okay. So let's turn this into <laughs> a, a financial podcast now. That's right. Uh, wow, I'm like the last person I should ever do that. I, <laughs> I remember my, my, growing up, my mom keeps saying, uh, talking about CDs, and I'd get excited about music, you know, which <laughs> she was talking about banking, right? Still, if someone says CD, I'm like, ooh, what am I going to hear now? Well, I still like CDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Oh, yeah, I did that. Um, <laughs> 
here's one place it does break down that just going um when the original star wars was released they uh did not have the merch ready because that never happened before so christmas 1977 a whole lot of kids got an iou for star wars action figures from their parents there's like an official sheet or something like man if you're six years old that's still disappointing you know (laughs) yeah like like not getting the cabbage patch kids when it came out yeah they would give you like the little birth certificate or like the adoption form like it's on the way but you know (laughs) kids don't kids don't have patience for contracts uh Maybe that's what this is trying to teach him. It's so important. Get some patience for it. That's, that's what you need. So, well, I mean, I really, I really do feel, and I'm biased, but this is Disney telling you contracts are important. If you're watching this movie, contracts are important. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just um, since I guess some people do see this on video now, and if you're listening, who cares? But I'm crouched into the uh, <laughs> screen so weirdly now so i'm talking as directly into the microphone as i can so it doesn't sound terrible just just fyi <laughs> this is just the new pov we're gonna do this from now this on. is the new pov you're now gonna get a weird side profile of me for for these or something i don't know i'll work out my text uh later uh i'm looking uh, through my notes and i'm mostly just writing like entertainingly snarky stuff uh, oh, let's hear it so. let's get some snark out there oh um let's see dingleblatting made it to the new version snarfblatt did not uh for whatever oh because that's the <laughs> pipe that's why okay there's no smoking they did cut out I, I guess i should make a few observations on 2023 that's what some of my notes are about um yeah they cut out i think they cut out the cooking scene where um renee well, Aber- so, so I, I have a note on that i have a note on this one because in the cooking scene in the animation they portray the chef as like the ultimate bad guy it, it reminds me of the brave little toaster where the guy that runs the repair shop is seen as this horrible monster that's like disfiguring and, and mutilating you know these secondhand appliances and again here we've got the chef but as i'm watching this it's like if this only makes sense if everyone in the movie is a vegetarian, uh, because otherwise all the chef is doing the entire movie is cooking food. Like he doesn't do a single thing that's out of character or nefarious or malicious. All he's doing is cooking food and he sees that there's a live crab in his kitchen and he cooks seafood all day. Like there's absolutely nothing that I kind of see like bad about that particular character. Uh, so I don't know. It, I understand maybe cutting him. It might've been a little bit too scary, but also I'm, I don't know if Disney's is promoting uh, vegetarianism yet or not. And um, I should note like, like Jiminy Cricket and the new Pinocchio, Sebastian is now rendered like completely terrifying in this, this quote unquote live action version. <laughs> that so, yeah, they're taking their cute characters and turning them into like abominations, you know, get, getting back to the uh, Anunnaki genetic engineering vibe, I guess. Um, Oh, the other big popular occult thing. Uh, we 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 don't we have to talk about the the priest's erection, don't we? Oh yeah, I guess so. Sure. <laughs> I mean, people would be like, "Oh, they didn't talk about that. What's up?" So I don't know. Disney says no. That's a knee. So I mean, take- if it's it's what what's the the stupid? Is it a, a white and gold dress or is it a blue and gold dress? I I forgot what the thing was, but uh, <laughs> it's like. It is whatever you want it to be at this point. To me, it's always going to be a dick. Like the okay. priest is always going to have a hard on. I, I yeah, <laughs> the priest always has hard on. Uh, <laughs> no, I actually missed it. I was like, 
I was looking for it by watching last night and, and I, I missed the shot. So um, it happens quick. I don't know if they've edited it out. I don't think they did, but it happens really quick. It's like a very minor have to pause the frame to see it kind of thing. Okay. I definitely did not have the um, patience for that. It's so. not, it's not quite on rescuers level where you literally have to have like the, the laser disc and pause it at a frame rate that most people didn't have at the point. But it, you know, so it's a little bit easier to see. I do think it's a dick. Yeah, I mean, whatever. <laughs> Fortunately, they were able to include that in um in the twenty twenty three movie. So oh, they also have a, a dick in live action. Oh no, they don't. Well, I don't know. Maybe they do, and I didn't notice. But uh... <laughs> you got to get the laser disc and, and freeze frame it. That's right. That's right. Uh, what else do I got here? Let's see. Uh, Prince Eric sucks at charades. It was. I don't know. I I guess there's. You can't believe the impossible so easily, but uh, he should have been better at charades than he was. Um, oh, yes. Okay. Here's something the first time noticed watching it last night. Did the boat have a giant veiled statue on deck for like the entire voyage? Because they have the giant statue oh, of Prince right Eric. when he unveils it at the very beginning i suppose seems... so yeah Did... but the way that he unveils it it almost seems like someone had been working on it and it's been like hidden this whole time yeah I maybe but i Continuity. mean yeah, I guess, <laughs> yeah i don't know i i guess you can't i guess they did transport statues on tall ships but i just like the idea that there's hey what's that you know for like six weeks or whatever <laughs> <laughs> and then they finally unveiled at the very end Yes, yes. Um, there's I, I there's the fan theory which I always like too that the shipwreck uh, Ariel is exploring is is the frozen girl's parents shipwreck. I, I like that little tide continuity bit. Have you oh, heard, I, heard I that have one? No, I, no I, I didn't even know that the for what Elsa. I didn't know that her parents died in a shipwreck. Yeah, in the beginning of Frozen, it shows that uh, Anna and Elsa's parents died in a shipwreck, and it looks you know it's a tall ship, so. The fan theories. Oh, that's the ship that Ariel's exploring, which I kind of like. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that's kind of fun. That that pretty much does like you know uh, most of my my notes. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to throw out? I've got a few more. Yeah, I've got. I've got. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. So, kiss the girl. Where let's not even talk about again. It's a little bit creepy because it's an eighteen-year-old legal adult. And it's, but anyways. This scene is interesting to me because they imply that animals can understand humans, like they they understand English. So first of all, does that mean that all animals always have understood in the cons in the context of this movie, animals have always understood humans and they just ignore us, which is kind of a dick move as a whole on all of animals. Yeah, that makes on- sense. But on top of that, they the uh, humans can hear animals, and there's no longer um, either there's no longer a magical connection where Ariel can talk to animals, just like every other Disney protagonist has this magical ability to talk to animals. But in the Kiss the Girl scene, Sebastian and other fish and other like like uh, ducks or something, they're singing, and Prince Eric can hear them clearly because they're saying like Kiss the Girl and and all these different like subliminal mess. They're literally giving him subliminal messages, right? There's a Disney movie about teaching a legal adult male to kiss this under. Anyways, the uh, the <laughs> the concept here 
is that animals are super dicks because they can talk to us if they wanted and they can they can hear us and follow our instructions if they wanted. They just don't do either of those things. They only listen to Ariel and other merfolk or something, I guess. So I it's just a weird little continuity thing, but it just made me think like, are all Disney animals dicks? And they're all magical and they're just choosing to gaslight everybody except for like Snow White or, you know, take your pick. And then they'll talk to them but then pretend like they can't talk anymore. Well, they're all subjects of King Triton, who is ruled that we do not talk to the humans. So he he's a dick, right? I, I, yeah, Everyone is I, I suppose cowering, so. cowering under his power, but not as much as a contract. Right. Again, dude, no- <laughs> the contract is, is more powerful than God. Animals take nothing more seriously than contracts, I'm sure. And so, so out of context, here's some lyrics from Kiss the Girl. Boy, you better do it soon. She won't say a word. That's from that's from that that song. Okay. And then when she gets back, Ursula immediately calls Ariel a little tramp. And then she's go she goes, ah, she's better than I thought. Like she's luring this human in with her her, you know, sexual energy. And then she immediately grabs a butterfly and smashes the butterfly into the fire. And that's like this evil magic spell that she's like casting. And I mean, I, I can't not put Project Monarch Disney programming in here because out of all the things that she could have done, it's a butterfly. So anyways, there there's a there's a, a potential monarch connection. Although as far as I'm aware, most monarch information didn't come out until the mid to late 90s, not in 89. So if anything, maybe Disney had, you know, predictive programming here. I feel like Mariah Carey really popularized that. <laughs> Among others, but yeah. <laughs> that's my that's my first go-to, I guess. When I'm just thinking of like, you know, obvious 90s monarchs. <laughs> I mean, and you know, and style and substance, however you want to go about it. So <laughs> it was it was a, a huge motif and it and it kind of continues to be. And then uh, uh, I had one. I had one other note here, and it's weird that Prince Eric is seen as like the guy when he falls in love with the voice, and not you know, like he doesn't trust his eyes, he doesn't trust the actual love, right? He falls in love <laughs> with the voice that Ariel gives up, which obviously plays into the irony. But I think it also has to do with that golden bow aspect, where he it's almost like the prince wants the soul. Because Disney has inverted the story where it's no longer the soulless mermaid that needs to find a human soul because you can't sell the toy without the soul. Again, like they, the Toy Story, they want inanimate objects to have souls. So, of course, the protagonist has to have a soul. So, in this case, they flip that and it's Eric that doesn't have the soul. And that's why he's fascinated by the voice. And all he cares about is his voice following it around because the voice represents Ariel's soul. So I feel like it's just it's an inversion of this like mythological archetype. To be to be fair, he is being a bit mind controlled at that point as well. So I mean, because he's he's completely out of it. You know, the next couple scenes. What and also the uh, the mermaids, right? The the traditional role of the mermaid was that they would kind of hypnotize you into this. And and to put a little feather in the cap, the original story of the Little Mermaid, she does not convince. I'll call him Prince Eric. I don't think his his name has always been Prince Eric, but she does not convince the prince to fall in love. And therefore she does end up perhaps returning to Seafoam. And there's the, the happy ending version of this is, is that 
her sisters all come to her and they bring her a dagger and they tell him you have to you have to kill the prince and drip his blood on your feet and then you can turn back into this mermaid and like undo this spell and she actually goes to do it and at the last second she can't bring herself to murder the prince and because she doesn't kill him and put his blood on her feet then she she basically is granted a soul it's like oh man this this act of you know morality proves that you deserve the soul after all so she kind of gets it and that's the happy ending but man what a gruesome story is it potentially it would have ended with her murdering the prince and then putting his blood on her feet which again i have to bring back the paracelsus because some of the original stories about having magic of homunculi being able to walk on water being able to breathe underwater involve taking this mythological being killing it and putting its blood on your feet i'm not i'm not making that up i've got proof (laughs) (laughs) it's right here (laughs) it's right here in the homunculus owner's manual i think there's even a an exact panel about someone dripping uh blood on their feet in order to do something magical so it's in there it's it's so long it's so long i can't even find oh that's it right there Okay. Oh, that's a lot of blood. You can okay. feed a homunculus <laughs> blood and milk for 40 days in the dark, after which his blood can be used to anoint your feet to walk on water and a number of other miracles. This is from research from Paracelsus. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know. Should I just dovetail that into how, how do we get that? <laughs> oh, you can get that at paranoidamerican.com along with a whole bunch of other uh, cool, interesting things that you'll only find at paranoidamerican.com. That's the homunculus owner's manual. There we go. Um, we're called Disney. We we also hang out on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. Facebook. Don't dead, don't dead name Twitter. It's X now. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the artist formerly known as Twitter is the best name to use. I think so. That's what I usually go with, but yeah, I call Disney pod there. Um, and then I put episodes a little early up on, uh, the Patreon podcast, you podcast here. So you can hear a bit of that and probably a whole lot of technical difficulties today. If you want to hear that sort of thing, which will be, hopefully I'll edit that for the proper cast. Um, so I just, I couldn't, it was, it seems such a, a glorious, uh, segue. I, I couldn't pass it up, but, uh, did, did you get all your points out? <laughs> oh yeah, no, yeah, we're good, man. This was this was a really fun one. Highly recommended. I think the movie on its own merit is a good movie. Not a fan of all of the the, the songs. Some people love them. Under the Sea is an awesome song. I think. Yeah, that um, deserves yeah, its award. Re rewatch this. Consider that Ariel isn't supposed to have a soul, but now invert that and read the Golden Bow about having to uh, kill kill the king in order to take the princess and invert that and i just feel (laughs) like disney at this point has become experts in the occultism so now they can have fun with it now they can start inverting stuff and 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 tweaking the rules like i what's that adage that i'm about to butcher but it's like uh you you can't break the rules until you master them i think that's sort of the the cusp of where disney's at right now they've mastered animation styles they've mastered the art of storytelling at least from the grim perspective of taking these ancient you know germanic tales and then turning them into modern times but now it's also like 
And we're going to sell lots of merch. And here's how we do that. It's through these occult symbolism and teaching kids that contracts are important and, and giving our protagonists souls and making sure that we immediately abandon all parental figures. And this one, she voluntarily leaves, right? She runs away from home, but it's still the removal of the the authority figure. There's no authority figure in this movie except for her sidekicks, Sebastian and Flounder, which inevitably become you know like the popular little plush animals and happy meal toys that go along with it so disney proxy in full effect right on and hey let's face it kind of makes the movie better when you watch it with uh interesting lenses you know so that's what we're here to do so okay i'm going to, i'm gonna go under the sea because it's so hot today geez <laughs>